to the five things I read this week podcast. I'm your host, Zach Schmall. The five things I read this week podcast is the division of entering the public square, a blog founded on the sincere belief that every Christian should understand the importance of discussing Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. You can find us online at enteringthepublicsquare.com. The podcast is hosted there. You can also find the podcast in the iTunes Store or the Google Play Store. So there are plenty of ways for you to check it out if you want to become a loyal listener. I would appreciate it also if you would leave a review on either iTunes or the Google Play Store. Those things matter for rankings and such, so I would be greatly appreciative if you would take the time to check it out. Today's a bit of a uh, combination episode. I don't necessarily have one strong theme underlying all five of these articles, but the first one I have for you is from the Imaginative Conservative. It was written by Daniel Laudier, and it was published originally on January 18th, 2018, and The Imaginative Conservative does point out that this was republished from Intellectual Takeout, another one of my favorites. And the title of this article is The Problem of Too Many Books, which seems like a problem that's hard to relate to. I don't know about you, I have a lot of books, either in print or in ebook form. I don't really see a problem with that, to be quite honest, but that's not quite where this article is going. So Laddier is writing this article about how there's really a danger of information overload. And here's a quote. In the U.S. alone, there are more than one million new books published every year. Two-thirds of them are self-published. Those are added to the pile of the more than 134 million unique titles estimated to have been published since the invention of of Gutenberg's publishing press. And apparently, even more books are on the way. According to one survey, 81% of Americans feel they should write a book. Now, as someone who has self-published two books, maybe I'm contributing to the problem. I don't know. But I I understand his point. And I thought about this in relation to my upcoming dissertation in my PhD program. There is so much information everywhere coming from a variety of sources, and particularly from sources that are hard to track the reliability of. That what are we to do? How are we to filter this? There's not just Oxford University Press, and you know that when you pick up a book from Oxford University Press, it will have been vetted quite strongly, and is very likely to be a valuable, reliable source for you to draw your own research from, or to use as a source. Now, what does that mean for us as Christians, though? Well, I'm certainly a believer in the fact that we all have access to the Scripture. 
we learn from the scripture, and the Holy Spirit can guide our reading through the scripture to help us understand what we read. I'm a big believer in an individual's ability to do that. And so, sometimes, that can lead us to want to share what we've learned, maybe in a book form. And that's fine. But there's also some danger here because there's no accountability built into the structure. For Christians, particularly, we believe in certain things that are true. Yes, Christianity has different branches, different denominations. Sure, we don't agree on everything, but there certainly is a core of Christian belief that we ought to believe in, such as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fallenness of man, the existence of God, etc., etc., etc. There's a whole list of them. You've heard them before. Now, it's quite possible in our age of easy publication that heresy is published a lot, masked as something it isn't, and perhaps widely distributed if there's a particularly strong writer who appeals to the masses. And certainly this can happen in traditional publishing. Plenty of heresy has been published in all kinds of forms from all kinds of places. So this isn't a unique problem to our modern everybody can publish era, but it is something that we ought to be aware of, particularly when reading sources that don't seem to have the traditional hallmarks of reliability. It doesn't mean we throw everything out. It doesn't mean that we can't trust anyone. We just have to discern. And we have to discern more than ever. Because, let's say, you are a Baptist. In the past, it was easy to pick up a catalog from, I believe they're called Baptist General Press. My grandfather likes that publication. And the, the great part about that is you know that whatever is in there, if you are a Baptist, then you're getting something that will probably be vetted and will be something that you can rely on and trust the teaching from, you know, reliable sources. If you're on Amazon, there's a little bit, there's a little bit more of a question. I, I don't know if, I just don't know. Because who knows who put up that ebook on Amazon. So as Christians, it strikes me as very, well, important, to say the least, that we discern on things that are this important, on the hallmarks of our faith, we need to be very careful that we don't fall into heresy. And so this article was entitled The Problem of Too Many Books, written by Daniel Ladier. It was originally on Intellectual Takeout, but I found it 
on the imaginative conservative. And it resolved the problem of too many books. Now, moving on to actually intellectual takeout on an article they wrote on January 22nd, 2018, written by Jean Twenge. Massive study finds links between high screen time and unhappiness. Now, this is kind of interesting. They studied teenagers' happiness, and it's an analysis of over 1 million U.S. teens, how teens were spending their free time, and which activities correlated with happiness, and which didn't. So they've been studying 8th, 10th, and 12th graders based on a study that's been conducted annually since 91. Every year teens talk about their happiness and how they spend their time. Here's a quote for you. We found that teens who spent more time seeing their friends in person, exercising, playing sports, attending religious services, reading, or even doing homework were happier. However, teens who spent more time on the internet playing computer games, on social media, texting, using video chat, or watching TV, were less happy. So, I mean, that's significant right off the bat. The, uh, the screen time is seemingly, now correlation does not equal causation. Please remember that, and don't ever forget. It's vitally important. Without the... We don't want to jump irresponsibly to that conclusion. Now, it does seem, though, if happiness is decreasing, it's at least something to look at. For example, here's some more specific stats. Teens who meant or who spent more than five hours a day online were twice as un or twice as likely to be unhappy as those who spent less than an hour a day. And they do point out that of course maybe unhappy people are more likely to seek out things on the screen. So causation to run the other direction as well, but it's significant because what do we, what do we do? I mean, do, is the answer just cut out the screen altogether? If you're a parent, I'm not a parent, but if you are, is the answer just ban your child from using the internet? Tell them, no, that will make you unhappy? I mean, I don't know that that's the answer. I don't know that it's practical to do so, honestly, in 21st century America to entirely cut out the screen. But it does cause us to perhaps be intentional about what we do and how we use the internet, and not just waste time looking at a screen, playing video games, or whatever else, 
maybe that's the lesson that we can learn from this, that let's say we need to use the internet for whatever purpose, we need to use our computers for whatever purpose. I'm recording my podcast right now. I write my website. My doctorate program is online. So I do spend a lot of time on the screen. I don't know that it makes me unhappy. But it's because I'm intentional about what I'm doing. And I think that's the key. I'm happy getting my education. And I know that the means to get my education right now are via the internet. So, as a result, I am doing that to pursue that particular goal. So I'm not just mindly or mindlessly wandering around doing things that have no higher purpose, no goal in mind. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's the difference and perhaps the way that we should be looking at internet as Christians, looking at computers, looking at video games, looking at everything. As Christians, we're supposed to be appealing to God for a higher calling. We might know what we want to do, but we surrender that to God following his authority. God may have it for us to write on the website, or God might have it to actually have that Facebook conversation with someone. I know sometimes it's easy to think, just throw out everything technological. I don't know that that's true. But what I do know is like this article here, in intellectual takeout, too much screen time seems to make us unhappy. And if that's true, then whatever screen time we do have, perhaps we need to make sure we have a higher purpose in doing so. To make sure we focus on something that really is valuable and worthwhile, rather than just something that makes us unhappy. Quite frankly, none of us want to be unhappy. So I think that's really important as we think as Christians. How do we use our time? How do we spend our time? I don't know that we need to surrender technology altogether. But I also know that we want to make sure that we're following God's calling and maybe that's how we use technology in such a way that we don't fall into this trap of it making us miserable. We do it on purpose for God. We do it intentionally. So this article is from Intellectual Takeout. It was written on January 22nd, 2018 by Gene Twenge. And it's called Massive Study Finds Link Between High Screen Time and Unhappiness. Moving on to Crisis Magazine on January 24th, 2018, in an article written by K.V. Turley, Big Brother Facebook is watching you. Surprise, I mean, we all know this, right? Facebook knows a lot about us. Actually, I shared something on my personal Facebook tonight, a bit of a tangent, I hope you don't mind, but there was this idea that Facebook knows, you can see what ads Facebook shows you, and it shows you what categories it's lumped you in, including your political affiliation. Now, a lot of us seem to think, well, yeah, I I share a news story once in a while. Maybe Facebook doesn't know all that much about me. Yeah, they know you pretty well. 
They know a lot about you, and the funny thing is, we give them all that information for free. But anyway, I thought that was fascinating, but back to this article. So Facebook, as we know, is huge. Over a billion users. It, it's amazing the amount of traffic it has. And now they just run over 2 billion users. On June 27th of 2017. So they're, I mean, they're getting wealthy on this. Clearly, this article speaks to Mark Zuckerberg's personal wealth alone, not even counting everybody else, is at $73 billion. Now, there's all kinds of stories lately about how Facebook can be corrupted and used for bad things. And how sometimes fake news is spread via Facebook. We hear about that night and day on the news. Ironically, talking about fake news on the news. It's really kind of funny because one calls the other fake news, the other calls the other fake news, and they kind of banter back and forth all the time. But I digress. And the thing then about Facebook is that there are still there's still problems right on this giant online community it talks about bringing 2 billion people together and clearly people are doing it a lot they come to Facebook a lot they check out their page multiple times a day I mean I do I'm sure you probably do too and It seems like this giant, well, this is what the article says, a company as large as Facebook can't be ignored, even if its mission statement reads as apparently banal and meaningless as the 1970s Coca-Cola advertisement wanting to help the world sing in perfect harmony. In reality, or in any event, the corporate reality on offer is too concerning for indifference. Just this Christmas, Catholic charities found their charitable campaigns crippled by what they described as a Facebook bias against religious groups. In the previous months, pro-life groups have had their advertising accounts closed down without any warning by Facebook. When asked why, the Facebook response was only that the decision was final. So this is how Facebook builds community? How it brings people together? It seems Facebook has its own ideas about who is in its community, and also, by definition, who is to be deemed a non-person and banished outside of it. Let's stop right there. Of course they're a private company. They have a right to do whatever they want. Any company has a right to serve and to display certain things on their website. I don't deny that at all. I have my website, enteringthepublicsquare.com. If you don't like what I publish, I'm under no obligation to take it down. Facebook, they're allowed to let people use their site and they're allowed not to. It's kind of how it works. They can banish people. I don't think they should. 
because I think they should respect freedom of speech and allow people, if that truly is their ideal, to participate in the way that they would like to. But they're a private company and they have a right to do it. It's almost like a consultant doesn't have to take every job they're offered. They can say, well, that isn't a service I'm able to provide. So similarly, Facebook, they do have a right, I think, if they don't want to show Catholic charities, that's their own business. It's unfortunate, and I think it's a bad move, and it's not consistent with freedom of speech, but they're not the federal government. They're a private entity. They can do that. But the question then becomes, as Christians, are we prepared for a world in which our views are going to perhaps be frowned upon by those in power, those who control websites that we like to use? We do like to use Facebook. Many of us use it to spread word about our explicitly Christian websites. I do. People come to my website after seeing what I post on Facebook. People probably generally donated to Catholic charities after they saw an ad on Facebook to do so. They felt moved, and they did. Pro-life groups use Facebook a lot. I'm I'm a member of a lot of pro-life groups on Facebook. I see their content all the time, which is great. I appreciate seeing it. If Facebook doesn't believe that these types of people belong in their community and banish them. Certainly they have the right to do that, but then, as Christians, and it really shouldn't be any surprise, we just need to accept the reality that there are people and companies who aren't going to accept what we believe to be true. And if they don't want to hear our message Ultimately, they've made the choice to do that. The question then becomes, what do we do? I I don't know that we can't force Facebook to not filter content it doesn't like. I mean, we can't do that. Now, if a bunch of people left Facebook, or if they banished a lot of people, the impact on their bottom line might cause them to rethink. I mean, money talks, ultimately, in corporate America. But, it's a question that we need to consider, and as Christians recognize, it becomes more and more evident every day, and I'm not trying to stir up some kind of persecution complex here. In America, we are probably the luckiest people in the world, as far as I'm concerned. We live in a country where, by and large, We can practice our faith with very little intervention from the outside. Now, we see encroachments on that more and more, but still, for most of us, we're pretty free to practice our faith. And we ought to be grateful for that. But it makes you think, at the end of the day, Jesus did promise persecution to those who follow. Right now, we might not experience it in the future. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Maybe it will come in waves. 
I think about the Roman Empire. Christianity was persecuted. Then it became a state religion. Then, I mean, it was up and down and up and down. And times were good for Christians and times weren't. There, there was a lot of... There was sometimes highly active persecution. And sometimes it wasn't quite so active in the Roman Empire prior to Constantine. So, I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm not at all under the illusion that in America we are the most persecuted group in the world. Because that's really, I don't think, true. But it does just bring to mind again that as Christians we need to be prepared for a world that's not always going to accept what we believe is Christianity. And sometimes there will be consequences for that even if it's something as really insignificant as problems with Facebook. So this article is from Crisis Magazine, written on January 24th of this year, by K.V. Turley. Big Brother Facebook is watching you. Now, moving on to a more happier topic, and surprise, it's written again by Daniel Ladier, and it was also reprinted from Intellectual Takeout, but this time I found it on the Foundation for Economic Education, and it's called The Ten Habits of Logical People. It is really kind of a uh, an interesting article published on January 21st. So there are ten characteristics written by a philosophy professor D.Q. McCurney, or McHenry, who explained, if you want to be logical, here are 10 things you need to do. Number one, they're attentive. Number two, they get the facts straight. Number three, they ensure that their ideas are clear. Number four, they're mindful of the origins of ideas. Number five, they match ideas to facts. Number six, they match words to ideas. Number seven, they communicate effectively. Number eight, they avoid vague and ambiguous language. Number nine, they avoid evasive language. And number 10, they seek to arrive at the truth of things. Now, why do I bring this up? I think logic is valuable. I think that oftentimes we get too wrapped up particularly in our highly charged political climate, on arguing from emotion, arguing from really whoever can tell the best story wins. And oftentimes, when we start down that road, we run into very dangerous territory because then somebody comes along who can tell an even better story. And now we change our mind based on the story when really the situation hasn't changed at all. And so we need something better. We don't just want to be wrapped up in this idea that, oh, I'll believe the best story. How about we believe the one that's true? And being logical is a great way to come to truth. It's not foolproof, because we are fallen human beings, and our logic is also fallen, I believe. 
I don't think we always perfectly interpret things as logically as we could, just because our minds aren't always foolproof. But dedication to these 10 characteristics of logical people brings us to number 10. They seek to arrive at the truth of things. And that's basically the end of the line, right? If we're committed to logic, and if we're going to try our best to deduce what we can, we're aiming to find out what's real and what's true. And as Christians, that ought to be our commitment as well. We believe that the world is the way God has made it, and we believe that we can learn about that world. We believe that we can understand why God has done certain things, and maybe sometimes we won't, but that's the beauty of doing research. That's the beauty of science. That's the beauty of kind of understanding the world around us. I mean, really, when you think about it, The world works the way it does, and it's fascinating that we even live in a world that plays by the rules of logic. I think that's truly a gift from God, that everything isn't random, and we can actually know things, and we can actually conclude things. I think that's incredibly valuable, and really a gift. So, this article goes in a lot more depth than I just did. I found it on the Foundation for Economic Education, written, well, published on January 21st, written by Daniel Ladier again, The Ten Habits of Logical People. Moving on to number, ten, number five, from The Atlantic. Uh, from January 22nd, of 2018 by Connor Why can't people hear what Jordan Peterson is saying? Jordan Peterson is a hot topic right now. Clearly, he's been in the news a lot lately for this interview that he did on the pay gap. Well, it, it started on the pay gap and it kind of deviated from there with a British journalist named Kathy Newman. And, I mean, I don't want to get into a discussion about the pay gap and all that. That's not what I'm here to do. What I'm here to talk about, and what this article is here to talk about, the, the interview is linked on this article in the Atlantic, so you'll probably want to watch it. She consistently misrepresents Everything he says. It's remarkable. Every time he tries to present some evidence, she pretty much says, well, so you're saying dot, 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 and reframes his argument in a way, and he's like, no, that's not what I'm saying. So here's an example for you. So Newman, the interviewer, that 9% pay gap, that's a gap between medium hour Median hourly earnings between men and women. That exists. Peterson, yes. 
but there's multiple reasons for that. One of them is gender, but that's not the only reason. If you're a social scientist worth your salt, you never do a univariate analysis. You say women in aggregate are paid less than men. Okay. Well, then we break it down by age. We break it down by occupation. We break it down by interest. We break it down by personality. Newman, but you're saying, basically, it doesn't matter if women aren't getting to the top because that's what's skewing that gender pay gap, isn't it? You're saying that's just a fact of life. Women aren't necessarily going to get to the top. Peterson, no, I'm not saying it doesn't matter either. I'm saying there are multiple reasons for it. Newman, yes. But why should women put up with those reasons? Peterson, I'm not saying they should put up with it. I'm saying that the claim that the wage gap between men and women is only due to sex is wrong, and it is wrong. There's no doubt about that. The multivariate analysis have been done. I mean, so it was on and on like that. But you can see how he makes a claim and says there are multiple factors that affect a wage gap that are just beyond gender. And sometimes it's based on the jobs people have, or the interest people have, or the age of people, or the personality. I mean, there's multiple factors here. And gender is really important. I mean, he admits that. But she's continually reframing him to say, what well, you're saying, dot, dot, dot. What you say, dot, dot, dot. And that, that worries me. Um, and here's the conclusion from Friedersdorf, and I apologize if I messed up that last name, but this is, I guess what's wrong with our political climate today that Friedersdorf nails on the head. Actually, one of the most important things this interview illustrates, one reason it is worth noting at length, is how Newman repeatedly poses as if she is holding a controversialist accountable, when in fact, for the duration of the interview, it is she that is stirring things up and whipping people into a state of anger. At every turn, she's the one who takes her subject's words and makes them seem more extreme, or more hostile to women, or more shocking in their implications than Peterson's remarks themselves support. Almost all of the most inflammatory views that were aired in the interview are ascribed by Newman to Peterson, who then disputes that she has accurately characterized his words. And he also goes on to say, you know, this it, isn't an endorsement or a condemnation of Peterson, it's just saying that this approach used in the interview is really dangerous. And I agree, and as Christians, we should be prepared for that. Because we've probably all seen this in our, in our lives, right? We've probably all seen people twist our words and force us to take positions that maybe we don't hold. And I find that, I mean, interesting for one thing. But I also find that highly problematic as we move into who knows what phase of political discourse 
honestly, our political discourse is pretty frightening right now. And the reason it's so frightening is because people don't sit down and talk, and they don't really seem to have any concept of dealing with the other side, of actually trying to understand what someone else feels or why they feel that way. We might not agree at the end of the day. I know there's plenty of people in the world who I don't agree with, and I probably never will, and they probably never will agree with me, and the reason none of us will agree is because we have a fundamentally different worldview. I get that. I'm not saying that we all have to agree at the end of the day. What I am saying is that we at least have to have a good faith effort to interpret people on their own terms and to not do what Newman does in this interview and just twist someone's words and say, well, you're saying that. All that does is set up straw men. It's a ridiculous way to try to argue because all you do is knock down a position that person doesn't really hold. As soon as you knock down that position, then they say, well, light position. Well, that's not my actual position. And now you've given ammunition to their supporters. I have a feeling, and I don't have any objective evidence to back this up, but if you liked Jordan Peterson going into this interview, you probably like him even more after this interview. And the reason is not that he said anything new, not that he came up with some new insight that you'd never heard before, and now you really, you know, appreciate from him. I think everything he talks about in this interview he's presented before elsewhere online. It, it sounds that way for me, that what Newman is drawing from is what he's talked about previously. But now he comes off as a hero. As look, he dealt with this tough questioning and he made it look so easy. And now, you know, he's even cooler than I thought he was because he stuck it to the man or to the woman, I suppose, in this case. So her entire purpose here to like debunk Jordan Peterson, she actually defeated herself by being overly aggressive, by overstating her case, and really by missing the point. If she really wanted to discredit Jordan Peterson, there's a few ways to do that. One is to obviously just engage with his argument, not to straw man them, but actually take them head to head. People do that all the time. We just debate like normal people. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is simply just to let him state his case and let people decide on their own if that's the case they want to follow. So maybe Newman didn't want to challenge Peterson head on in my hypothetical example. Maybe she came to this interview saying, look, I don't think Jordan Peterson is a great guy. I don't agree with his views. Sometimes, you know, the best way to combat something that's wrong is to simply shine the light on it. So she could have done that too. She could have simply said, look, here's what he says. You know, judge it as you will. And if she was convinced enough that he's wrong, then ideally the light should expose that downfall. 
I oftentimes think that with Christianity, I'm going to present the truth of Christianity. I'm going to present why other world Jews fail. If you ever read on my website, enter in the public square, you know that I do that quite often. I'll write about a particular worldview, and then you can kind of come to your own conclusions about that. Because I think that the truth is going to win. I think that when people really sit down, think, do their homework, look at the logical implications of a worldview or a position or anything else, I think the truth is going to win more often than not. Not always, but more often than not, and I'm okay with that. People need to come to their own decisions freely and ultimately have an intellectually satisfying way to view the world. So if Newman really wanted to take it to Peterson, I think those are the two avenues she hit on down. She could have actually engaged his arguments, or she could have just presented a case and let the light shine on it, and let the chips fall where they may. So this article by Connor Friedersdorf was written on The Atlantic on January 22nd, 2018. It's entitled, Why Can't People Hear What Jordan Peterson Is Saying? And thank you guys for coming along for another episode of the five things I read this week podcast. Episode number 21. Man, that's crazy. Until next time, have a great week.